U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the third officer who is hoping for the exo spot, Christoph. Hey, everyone. It's good to be here. So, Christoph, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Dale. Uh, I really enjoy it, and uh, hopefully we can have a nice conversation and, and learn a little something along the way. Let's hope so. Otherwise, you're going to the brig. I, well, it wouldn't be the first time. So, last week was Steven's last episode, and we were talking about torpedoes. So, hopefully you paid attention, because we're going right into the middle of it, and I'm not reversing it for you. Is there a test at the end? There's always a test. Uh, oh, crap. Okay, I will be ready. All right, so you ready to get underway? Yes, sir. All right. So... We had just finished the guidance systems of these torpedoes, so we're going to get into how they were used in the different conflicts. So the Royal Navy had a frigate, the HMS Shaw, and this was actually the first naval vessel to fire a self-propelled torpedo in anger. This was during the Battle Toka, which was against a... Peruvian Iron Clan, the Huskar. And this was in 1877. Now, the boat was actually successful in outrunning the torpedo, so it didn't get hit. The Turkish steamer called the Intaba in 1877 became the first vessel to be sunk by a self-propelled torpedo. It was launched from torpedo boats operating from a tender called, wow, Vilakai Vanyas Constantin. I know I butchered the heck out of that, but it, there it is. That's how I've heard it. That's good. Okay, thank you. She was commanded by Stefan Ostovich Makarov during the Russo-Turkish War in 1877-1878. Hmm. So, before we continue, can I ask a question? Absolutely. Anytime you want to ask a question, you ask a question. Perfect. So, when you said the Shah was to, the first to fire in anger, is that a formal term, or what does that mean? Yes, whenever you're using your weapons in an engagement, firing at the enemy, you're using your weapons in anger. Okay. When you're firing your weapons during practice, you're just firing your weapons. Got it. I was just didn't know if there's like a self-defense situation. It's like, hey, I wasn't the angry one. They were the aggressor. I'm just trying to protect myself. Or no, whenever a fire uh, a weapon is fired at the enemy, that is firing your weapons in anger. Got it. Okay, good to know. And uh, interesting that they were able to outrun the torpedo. Did they even know what the torpedo was, and they decided to just turn around and flee? Oh yeah, everybody was developing torpedoes. Once I one see. country started doing it, the next. The other ones, you know, all the spies get together and say, okay, we're all doing it. Cool. Okay. I was just curious because if, if it was so new and foreign, they'd just look at it and go, what's that? But now, yeah, that would make sense. Someone didn't listen to the last episode. I would, did. that was me. I'm sorry. I got, I got a bad grade coming. Mm. Let's see if I can make it up. All right, go ahead. Okay. So another early use of the torpedo was during the War of the Pacific. 
There was a Peruvian ironclad, the Hascar, commanded by a Captain Miguel Garou. And they attacked a Chilean corvette, the Abato. This happened in 1879 at Antofagasta with a self-propelled lay torpedo. Unfortunately, it reversed course. Oh, no. <laughs> the Huskar was saved because a officer jumped overboard and diverted it. That dude is incredible. Yes, he what he he should if he didn't get a medal, they did him wrong. Yeah, it's like, hey, uh, you don't have to pay taxes again for the rest of your life. Oh, would that work now? If you jumped on a torpedo and diverted it, maybe. I don't know. I don't know what the case law is. Can it be self-built torpedoes? So can I just like build my own and then divert it and say, hey, look what I did? Let's talk about this offline. So in case there are. IRS officials listening right now. Oh, I don't think the IRS fleet even exists anymore. They're the Coast Guard now. <laughs> okay, well, then uh, continue your your plan. Well, the Chilean ironclad called the Blanco Encalada, she got sunk in 1891 by a self-propelled torpedo. From the Almirante Lynch. This happened during the Chilean Civil War in 1891. This became the first ironclad sunk by a torpedo. Wow. There was a Chinese turret ship, the Ding Yan, and it was reportedly hit by a torpedo and disabled. And this was done by a... Japanese torpedo boats during the first Sino-Japanese War in 1894. And, of course, all of these were fired at very close range, which means it was very dangerous to the attackers because they still didn't have the range that they needed. I could see that. So there are some sources that said that the Qing Dynasty, the Imperial Chinese military under Li Hongzhan, they had electric torpedoes and they deployed these in a number of different waterways along with fortresses and numerous other modern military weapons acquired by china huh so wait how so traditional torpedoes i assume are gas driven or some kind of combustion is that correct there's a number of different ways we'll get into propulsion later okay because when you specified electric i was Caught my attention, but yes, I, I will pay attention. Go right ahead. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we'll go into all the different propulsion systems in, 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 in a little bit while. In, okay. In a little bit while. Yeah, that works. Yeah, totally. In a little while. Uh, so the Chinese developed the capacity to manufacture these electric torpedoes on their own in 1876. There is some Chinese art that show these torpedoes being used against Russian ships during the Boxer Rebellion. Now, whether they were actually used or not is not really known. Because anybody can draw a picture. Right. right. So the Russo-Japanese War was the first great war of the 20th century. This was 1904 to 1905. And 
during this war, the Imperial Russian and Imperial Japanese navies launched nearly 300 torpedoes at each other. Holy moly. All of these were the self-propelled automotive type. Okay. The deployment of these new underwater weapons resulted in one battleship, two armored cruisers, and two destroyers being in battle. And with the other roughly 80 warships being sunk by, you know, conventional methods like gunfire and mines and people just scuttling their boats. So at this point, um, during the technological development of torpedoes in this conflict, uh, what kind of range would you into, did they have? I, I imagine it was not as close as some of those earlier ones with uh, like the Chinese electric development or even the ones with the ironclads with the Chileans. Is this m more of the what we've seen in the movies as, for example, like World War II-ish? Or I'm sure there was some a gradation of development as time has passed. Well, I mean, this is still before World War II, so they're, they're still working on it. We're not going to get World War II ranges. I mean, the first batch in the 1870s went around 1,000 yards. That's not bad. So while we don't, I don't specifically know in the early 1900s how the ranges are, it's still not far enough to be comfortable. Yeah, so you still have to get really up close to your enemy before you deploy these for them to be successful. Plus, you also got to think of failure rates, guidance troubles. Oh, yeah. Because even World War II, the U.S. at the beginning, they had really, really crappy torpedoes. I imagine everybody had pretty crappy torpedoes at first. Uh, the U.S. <laughs> had even worse. We're oh. even worse. Oh, yeah. Uh, come on, guys. Well, hopefully we'll get it together. Let's keep listening. Eventually, in 1905, during the Battle of Tsushima, the flagship of the Admiral, the battleship Kanyez Suvorov, had been pretty much just hammered with 12-inch guns into pretty much a wreck. So because of this, the Russians started scattering and so the Togo prepared for pursuing them. Okay. And while doing this, he ordered his torpedo boat destroyers to finish off the Russian battleship. So it was set upon by 17 torpedo firing warships. Huh. 10 of them destroyers and four of them torpedo boats. They launched 21 torpedoes at this battleship. Three hit. That's insane. I guess every time I would imagine a torpedo being launched, I know there's a chance of it missing. But I would imagine it'd be much higher than 3 out of 21. Oh, it's hard to hit something. Everything's moving. Well, ships seem like rather large targets. Yeah, I guess you do have to kind of... There's water resistance and the movement of the ships and the, the waves. and Yeah, the movement of the ships, the movement of the water. Every, everything's in flux. Naval warfare is not easy. No, I imagine not. Huh. Well, yeah, I guess, again, a lot of my wartime uh, reproduction information comes from Hollywood, which they don't show a lot of the misses, except for that one scene in The Hunt for Red October. But, yes, again, continue. So, these three were enough, though, and she sank pretty quickly. 
and took about 900 men with her. Oof. So at the end of the Russo-Japanese War, they came up with an idea of dropping torpedoes from aircraft. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Aircraft was developed or was in progress or first deployed properly, formally during World War One, from what I understand. So would this be this would be prior to that? World War One would be 1914 ish to 1918. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I'm more thinking of World War One is the beginning of using aircraft. Right. Mostly it was used for scouting, and some of them did have machine guns, especially towards the end. And bombs that were used were dropped by hand. They kept were kept in a little cubby right next to the pilot, and they would just pick up the bomb, put it over the side of the plane, and drop it. Huh. That's that seems not. Um, I don't know. I have a lot more respect for pilots. We'll say. <laughs> but this uh, dropping torpedoes from planes was thought of in the early 1910s by a guy named Bradley A. Fisk, who was in the U.S. Navy. Huh. He was given a patent in 1912, and he worked out the mechanics of carrying and releasing a torpedo from a bomber. And he's the one that came up with tactics that included nighttime approaches. So, you know, the target ship would be less able to defend herself. Fisk determined that the torpedo bomber should you know descend very rapidly in a sharp spiral to evade the enemy aa guns and then about 10 or 20 feet above the water she would strengthen her straighten her flight path long enough to line up and release the torpedo between 15 and 2000 yards from the target 15 yards or 15, did I say 15? 1,500 oh. to 2,000 okay. yards. Sorry. I was like, wow, these guys are so brave. But still, that's very close. Yep. And I'm curious to hear that they had AA guns in the early 19-teens or 10s. The beginning of them. I'm sure a lot of them were just machine guns, too. Yeah. Hmm. So, based on those tactics, how successful were, were folks with torpedo planes? About as successful as anybody else. You send in a, an air wing during World War II, and maybe two of them would get through. Oh, yeah. Two planes. Then maybe one torpedo will hit. Maybe one. So the Royal Navy, their air service, started experimenting with torpedo bombers. And the first successful drop was in 1917. A guy named Gordon Bell dropped a Whitehead torpedo from a short S-64 seaplane. And after this success, they started building purpose-built torpedo aircraft. The first one is the short type 184, built in 1915. That plane, is that an English plane? Then I assume based on what you've just mentioned as far as who the first successful uh, torpedo launched by the English? Yes, this was done by the British during the First World War. They built 936 aircraft during World War I. 
So they built 937 aircraft, you say, during World War I? Or of this type? 936 torpedo bombers. Got it. So two prototype aircraft were put on the HMS Benmi Cheri, and she went to Argentina in 1915 to take part in the Gallipoli campaign. One of these planes was piloted by a guy named Charles Edmonds, and he was the first pilot with the first aircraft in the world to attack an enemy ship with a air-launched torpedo. Wild. He sank an Ottoman transport ship, and the other guy that was with him was forced to land on the water because he had engine trouble. Oh. Well, it happens. Now, he saw an enemy tug close by him. So he taxied up to it and fired his torpedo. Nice. He sank the tub. And now that he didn't have the weight of the torpedo, he was able to take off and get back. Huh. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty good. I know of, I have a friend that's English, and the Gallipoli campaign is not their brightest moment. But this, this is a nice example of, oh, well, that worked out well. Yeah, that was, that was, that was fun. That was cool. So now that we're at World War II, torpedoes were widely used in World War II, of course. This was against both shipping and against submarines. Germany, they disrupted the supply lines to Britain by pretty much just submarine torpedoes. But the submarines also did extensively use their guns. Because during this time, torpedoes are not staying underwater for very long. They run out of air quickly. Oh, okay, right. And their batteries deplete and they can't run under the surface for very long. So Britain and its allies, they also used war. The U-boats themselves were targeted and 20 of them were sunk by torpedoes. That sounds like a pretty difficult shot. I mean, like you were talking about how difficult it is to hit anything with a torpedo, but a submarine to submarine or even a plane delivered torpedo to submarine sounds like it'd be very tricky. Yeah. Well, here, here's a picture of them actually firing a torpedo and how they had to do it. Oh, man. Yeah. Took eight guys to fire that thing off. That's nuts. So two Royal Italian Navy torpedo boats scored hits against a Austrian-Hungarian squadron sinking a battleship, the SMS Sevent Istvan, with two torpedoes. Hmm. That's impressive. Yeah. So the Royal Navy starts experimenting with ways to increase the range of torpedoes during the war. And they started using pure oxygen instead of compressed air. And this ultimately led to developing a torpedo called the 24.5-inch Mark I, which was an oxygen-enriched air fire torpedo. This was intended originally for the G3-class battlecruisers and the N3-class battleships in 21, but they got canceled because of the Washington Naval Treaty. Oh, what? Do you know? Okay, I don't know much about that treaty. What, what stymied their ability to continue that? That seems weird that a, a nation would be developing a weapon like that and then 
would have to stop. Well, this was the Five Power Treaty. It was signed in 1922, which agreed to prevent a arms race by limiting naval construction. Interesting. That would be why. Okay, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Not very effective, though, doesn't sound like. Well, I mean, everybody's going to build stuff in secret. Yes. Germany did, and that's why they were all of a sudden just massive on the map when World War II mm -hmm. kicked off. Right. So all this is just uh, posturing. We promise not to build this stuff in the open is what the treaty should read. That's how it was interpreted. Okay. <laughs> Especially by the Axis. Yeah, well, they, they had a good head start for sure. Now, initially, the Imperial Japanese Navy, they were purchasing Whiteheads and Schwarzenkopf torpedoes. But by 1917, they were conducting their own experiments, and they eventually abandoned them because of premature detonations. They couldn't get it right. So that leads me to a question that I never really understood. So our torpedoes, they're not timer-based, they're impact-based, right? And so they have to receive some kind of some amount of pressure on the front to, like, activate and then explode. Is that correct? They're both. Oh, okay. They can be timer-based, they can be impact-based, or they can be both. Oh, like, don't explode until after so many seconds and then impact or something like that? Impact and then explodes, like, five seconds later. Oh. After it penetrates deeper into the ship. Cool. I mean, horrifying at the same time, but cool. Like, academically. War, war is horrifying. Oh, yes. I, I think that, that should be uh, at the top of every episode. By the way, this is all horrifying, but we're going to talk academically about it anyway. So the Japanese, they decided that they were going to try to do it again. And in 1933, they finally had a working torpedo of their own. They used conventional wet heater torpedoes. What does that mean? It's an energy source. Okay. And we'll get more into that when we get to the energy source portion of our history. Cool. Sorry, I feel like my 10-year-old daughter just jumping in. It's like, what's this? And it's like, just keep listening, keep watching. We'll get there. No, it's, Sorry about it's, that. It's fine. <laughs> no worries. All right. After we're done with the history, we'll be getting into the energy sources. And there propulsion. we go. I've always heard, so in my U.S. history classes in high school, the reason supposedly America got roped in was the sinking of the Lusitania by a German U-boat, I assume by torpedo. Is that correct? The, oh, for World War One. Yes. Or was that World War Two? No, World War Two was the bombing of Pearl bombing Harbor. Bombing of Pearl Harbor, right? Because from what I understand, it was a, it was not a military vessel. It was just like supposedly a cargo vessel, but there were lots of American citizens on there. And so that was enough justification for America to say, oh, okay, we're in. And so at the time, so that was World War I, and Germany had advanced, it sounds like, pretty good on their uh, unrestricted naval warfare with submarines and torpedoes. So on May 7th, 1915, the Lusitania was sunk by a German submarine. 128 Americans died. Wilson demanded a apology. And they, he warned that we would not tolerate unrestricted submarine warfare. 
but we didn't get into the war yet. Oh. More Americans died when the SS Arabic was sunk in August. So that was, was that the trigger or did it just, I, there's, there's an element I'm missing and I apologize for not remembering. This is all the ramp up to it. Okay. Oh, wait, the Zimmerman note, was that World War One? Yes. Where the Germans communicated to Mexico, it's like, hey, if you help us in this fight, we'll uh, give you back like Texas, Arizona, California, all that stuff you lost to America. Yes, it was. The Germans were like, yeah, we, we sent it, what? That's what we would do. They were not, not very tactful on the diplomacy front. Yes. So what really drew everything in was because of the German submarine offensive, trade ships were starting to just stay in port, and this caused food shortages on the East Coast. So Congress said, okay, let's arm the merchant ships. And this is what made the administration committed to war. And so on April 6th, Congress declares war on Germany. Wow. Torpedoes play a pivotal role in America's history. And we'll get into more of that when we get into World War I. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so before World War II starts, pretty much all navies were camping out on the test of their torpedoes. So only the British and Japanese had fully tested torpedoes at the start of World War II. Unreliable torpedoes caused a lot of problems for the Americans in the early year of the wars, primarily in the Pacific theater. Uh, the Royal Navy's 24.5-inch oxygen-rich air torpedoes saw service in the two Nelson-class battleships, but by... The start of World War II, the enriched oxygen had to be discontinued because of safety concerns. Yeah, I bet. During the final part of the battle against the Bismarck, I'm sure that's a name you know. Uh, yeah, it is indeed. The Rodney fired a pair of 24 and a half inch torpedoes from her port side tube and got one hit. It was declared as unsinkable, so... Probably one hit from a torpedo I could just totally shrug off. Yeah. So this is the only instance in history of one battleship torpedoing another. Huh. I guess from a surface-class ship, firing guns just would be more effective generally, right? It depends on the ship. Battleships were designed to be mobile gun emplacements. Okay. Destroyers are designed more for fast maneuvering and for torpedoes, using torpedoes because they can zip in, fire off the torpedoes, and zip right back out. That makes sense. So a battleship doing that isn't as sensible as a lot of quicker, smaller ships. Yeah. Especially when you have that range advantage. I mean... Yeah, they were using, at the end of World War II, 16-inch guns. What kind of uh, range... Well, I guess I'll save that for the World War II episode. We'll stick to torpedoes. Curious about it, though. Well, let's put it this way. During the Gulf War, the USS Missouri was firing rounds the size of Volkswagens into Iraq. 
Yeah, that's that's huge. <laughs> so the Royal Navy, they keep continuing their torpedoes, the oxygen-enriched ones, with the 21-inch Mark Seven. This was designed for the county-class cruisers, but once again, these were converted to run on normal air because they were dangerous as they all get out. Mm-hmm. The Royal Navy were instead trying to perfect the Brotherhood burner cycle engine, which offered a performance as good as oxygen-enriched air, but, you know... Not as volatile. Yeah. <laughs> and this ended up being the very successful and long-lived 21-inch Mark Eight torpedoes. Now, just for clarification, you've mentioned a measurement a couple of times, 21-inch, 24-inch. I assume, is this diameter yes. or length? Okay. Yeah, this is diameter. So this torpedo served pretty much throughout World War II for the British and is actually still in limited service in the 21st century. Wow. The Mark VIII was used in two particularly notable incidents. On February 6, 1945, the only intentional wartime sinking of one submarine by another while both submerged took place when the HMS Venturer sank the German submarine U-864 with four Mark VIIIs. Wow. And then on May 2nd, 1982, when the Royal Navy submarine HMS Conqueror sank the Argentine cruiser ARA General Belgrado with two Mark VIII torpedoes during the Falklands War. Wow, only two. This is the only sinking of a surface ship by a nuclear power submarine in wartime, and the second sinkings of a surface ship by any submarine since the end of World War II. Very cool. I think um, it's interesting when you were mentioning the, uh, was it the Adventurer or the Avenger, the Royal Navy ship versus the German U-864? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the naming conventions are, are so wildly different, and yeah, I don't know. I prefer the, the British style. Well, the, the Germans were also pumping out U-boats left and right. Oh, they just, so many, they couldn't even name them. They only had a projected lifespan of one tour. Oh. Yeah, they did not expect them to last long, and a lot of them didn't. I did not know that. So, I mean, why come up with names when they're not going to have it next week anyway? And once you're in the 800s, I mean, makes sense. So a number of different surface ships, submarines, and aircraft were armed with torpedoes. Naval strategy at the time was to use torpedoes launched from submarines or warships against enemy warships in a fleet battle on the sea. There were concerns that torpedoes would be ineffective against warships with heavy armor. So what they tried to do was detonate torpedoes underneath the ship, which was supposed to damage its keel and other structural members in the hull. This was commonly called breaking its back because the keel is the back. Okay. So I imagine keels were probably not as armored as most of the rest of the ship, correct? The keel is the initial frame that goes from all the way from the front to the back. Mm -hmm. 
So if that gets damaged, the structural integrity of that boat is gone. Right. And that the only way to access that is underneath the boat. That makes sense. So they demonstrated this by using magnetic influence mines of World War I. So they would set a torpedo to run at a depth just beneath a ship, relying on a magnetic exploder to activate at the approximate time. Uh, Germany, Britain, and the U.S. devised different ways of doing this. The German and American torpedoes, unfortunately, suffered a number of problems with their depth-keeping mechanisms. They had faults in the magnetic pistols shared by all of their designs. And, of course, because of the inadequate testing they were doing, it failed to reveal the effect of the Earth's magnetic field on ships and the exploder mechanisms. So this resulted in a lot of premature detonations. Interesting. Yeah, I guess um, when you're dealing with magnets and not uh, taking into consideration perhaps the largest magnet in existence, that might be a problem. Yeah. So the Kaiser Marine and the Royal Navy promptly found that problem and eliminated that problem. And in the U.S. Navy, there was a, a lot of wrangling over the problems plaguing the Mark 14 torpedo. Trials had allowed bad designs to enter service, and both the Navy Bureau of Ordnance and the United States Congress were pretty much too busy trying to protect themselves to fix the problems. So fully functional torpedoes only became available to the Navy 21 months into the Pacific War. So that, that seems a lot longer than probably most people think about if they think about it. Um, what did that mean as far as the U.S. Navy's ability to engage the Japanese if they had, um, I, I guess, was it just all surface guns primarily since the torpedoes were so unreliable? And then how did they deal with submarines? It, or how many did the Japanese even have? And I know this is all coming up on a future episode. <laughs> well, so when this we may get be... to World War II, eventually. Yeah. Uh, so, no, the Navy still used the torpedoes they had. Because you still had a chance of it working. Yeah. But primarily, Navy used its air power. Right. Bombs and torpedoes you also had the surface ships and we pumped out so many surface ships you just overwhelm everybody okay yeah destroyers would handle the submarines with depth charges right now we also had radar when the japanese didn't so that was a huge advantage oh yes yeah was that everything um i think so uh go ahead I, we're talking about american torpedoes i have a question about japanese but we'll I'll wait till we get to that part. I'm not sure how many Japanese submarines were there were. It wasn't really uh, submarine launched. So from what I understood, I saw a documentary way back that talked about the difficulty of the planning of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Japanese had trouble with was how shallow it was. Yes. And so if they were to drop a, a torpedo into the harbor, it would just detonate uh, under sea, on the, the ground, so to speak. On the coral. And... Right. And so what they managed to do is they added a fixture on the, the propeller end. It was almost just like a block of wood yep. to, to give it more buoyancy. 
so that it would ride on the surface. It wouldn't go down. It would just kind of rest on the surface and then proceed to the targets. Is that accurate or was that was I misled by the media once again? Well, no, you weren't. Uh, I don't know if it was to add buoyancy, but was would help the torpedo skim the surface because yeah, Pearl Harbor is not deep. So yeah, if they nor normally torpedoes would drop, go well deep under and then come up to whatever they were set at for their uh, depth. So that it was wood. It was like a wooden fin that they added to their torpedo that helped uh, what I, I believe to create drag so it wouldn't go as deep. I see. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for uh, validating some of the knowledge I got when I was younger. You're welcome. So the British submarines, they use torpedoes to start sinking the Axis supply shipping to North Africa. The fleet air arm Swordfish sank three Italian battleships at Toronato by a torpedo and scored one hit on the German battleship Bismarck. A lot of tonnage of merchant shipping were sunk by submarines with torpedoes, both in the Atlantic and Pacific. Torpedo boats such as the MTBs, PT boats, or S boats, they were able to use relatively small but fast craft and carry enough firepower, in theory, to destroy a large ship. Although this didn't really work. It didn't really happen very often. Yeah. The largest warship sunk by torpedoes from a small craft in World War II was the British cruiser Manchester. This was sunk by a Italian MAS boat on the night of August 12th to 13th of 1942 during Operation Pedestal. Destroyers of all navies were armed with torpedoes to attack the bigger boats, like we were talking about earlier. In the battle off Samar, destroyer torpedoes from the escorts of the American Task Force Taffy 3 showed how effective they were at defeating the armor of these big boats. The damage and confusion caused by these torpedo attacks were instrumental in beating back the Japanese force of battleships and cruisers. In the Battle of the North Cape in 1943, torpedo hits from British destroyers Savage and Sumeres, they slowed a German battleship called the Scharnhorst enough for the battleship Duke of York to catch and sink her. Nice. And in May of 1945, the British 26th destroyer flotilla ambushed and sank the Japanese heavy cruiser Haguro. So during World War II, a guy named Hetty Lamar. Oh, that was a lady. And she was a famous uh, songstress. During World War II, a lady named Hetty Lamar and a composer named George Anthel. They developed radio guidance systems for American torpedoes. They wanted to use frequency hopping technology to get over jamming of their torpedoes. And as unfortunately, though, radio guidance had been abandoned a number of years earlier, so it ended up not being pursued. 
So it was eventually adopted in the 1960s. That technology. Uh, so I know a little bit about the electronics industry, and that's like the foundation of a lot of our cell phone uh, wireless technology, especially CDMA. If you're into CDMA versus GSM, um, it allows you to have more users in a domain because you can just swap the frequencies that they're on and accommodate more than what a normal carrying capacity could be. It's really revolutionary what they came up with. Yeah, it the tonight the uh spread spectrum techniques that they're using that they invent invented are in our Bluetooth technology and are in legacy versions of Wi Fi, as you were just saying. Yeah, it's amazing. Alrighty, so we still have a lot more to get to. So we're gonna just end it there. All right, so we are teamed up with HeroCars.us, where we honor one of our fallen angels at the end of every episode. So today we are going to honor water tender first class Elmer C. Bigelow. His hometown was Hebron, Illinois. He was stationed aboard the USS Fletcher DD-445. He received the Medal of Honor and Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was February 15, 1945. He was killed in action off Corregidor Island in the Philippines. He was 24 years old. So, Elmer C. Bigelow probably knew that rushing into a smoke-filled compartment on a burning ship without any protection would not end well. But he also knew that the crew would suffer devastating effects if he didn't. So he put his life on the line to save them. And for that, he was given posthumously the Medal of Honor. He was born July 12, 1920 to Albert and Verna Bigelow. Sometime after his younger brother, Lester, was born, his parents divorced. Both boys lived with their mother and stepfather in Hebron, Illinois. His Friends growing up remembered him as quiet, easygoing, and who liked to hunt and ride his motorcycle. After graduating from high school in 1938, he worked in Woodstock, Illinois, at the Alamite Die Casting and Manufacturing. His younger brother joined the Navy during that time and survived the bombing of the USS West Virginia during the Pearl Harbor attack. That was more than likely what led to his choice to enlist in the Naval Reserve, which he did September 21st, 1942. After training, he reported to the destroyer, the USS Fletcher, which set sail for the Pacific Theater in October 1943. He rose in the ranks from a firefighter to a water tender, which meant he was responsible for tending the fires and boilers in the steamship's engine room. At some point, he got to spend two hours with his deployed brother as their ships met and refueled in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. According to an article in the Northwest Herald, that was the last time they ever saw each other. On February 14, 1945, the Fletcher found itself in battle off Corregidor Island in the Philippines. He was standing on the top side of the ship when an onshore six-inch Japanese gun fired, hitting the Fletcher and penetrating its lower decks. The shell exploded into fragments, which killed several men, hit a gun magazine, and set fire to several powder kegs in a ammunition room. Knowing that the next few minutes were critical 
in keeping the ship from being destroyed, he jumped into action. He picked up a pair of fire extinguishers and rushed below deck to try to quell the growing flames. Since he had no time, he bypassed putting on a OBA, which is a breathing apparatus, and dropped into the magazine hatch despite the flames and blinding smoke that came out of it. According to his Medal of Honor citation, the burning powder smoke seared his lungs with every breath he took. So he forced himself to quickly put out the fires and cool the cases and bulkheads. He made it out of the compartment, but the damage to his lungs was too bad. He succumbed to his injuries the next day. According to the Northwest Herald newspaper, Lieutenant Arthur H. Murray Jr. wrote to Bigelow's mother to inform her of the loss. Murray assured her that her son wasn't in pain and fell into a coma before he died. The young sailor disregarded his own safety for the greater good. His courage and actions kept the ship's damaged magazine from exploding, a disaster that would have left the Fletcher at the mercy of the pounding Japanese guns on Corregidor. Quote, it was your son's devotion to duty and his quick thinking that saved the ship and the lives of many of his shipmates, Murray wrote. For his sacrifice, Bigelow earned the Medal of Honor. The award was presented to his mother, stepfather, and brother on February 15, 1946, one year to the day after he died, during a ceremony at Great Lakes Naval Base. Bigelow was initially buried overseas, but his family had him repatriated to the U.S. after the war was over. The fallen hero was buried in Lynn, Hebron Cemetery in his hometown on November 2, 1948. Bigelow's name has lived on. In 1957, the destroyer USS Bigelow was commissioned. A residence hall at Little Creek Naval Amphibious Base, which is now the Joint Expeditionary Base Little Creek Fort Story in Norfolk, Virginia, was named after him in 1974, and Bigelow Avenue runs through his hometown. So, water tender first class Elmer C. Bigelow. Thank you. Thank you. So, Christoph, would you like to try to take us out? Oh, his eyes just got huge. I don't know. <laughs> I can certainly try. Um, what? I, I, I don't know. I'll try. So I shouldn't shy away from my responsibility that, that you've bestowed upon me. So I will take us part of the way out and you can finish us off. Hopefully I'll do justice to this podcast. Um, thank you all for listening. Uh, hopefully you learned a little bit more about torpedoes and their development. Uh, it was really great being here. Uh, thank you very much, Dale, for having me. And um, we'll, we'll see what happens next episode. How can they reach us? Oh, well, you can uh, subscribe, number one, to our podcast on the podcast application of your choice. Uh, if you have questions, concerns, comments, or compliments, you can contact us at usnavalhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And our Twitter? I'm going to say it is USN History Podcast with the at at the front of it. At USN History Pod. Pod. Why would you need the cast? You're right. Man, I really did not do my homework. <laughs> This quiz that you're doing at the end, I am showing my true colors, and they are not good. We also have a Discord. The link for that is in the show notes. We are also on YouTube now, so you can listen to the show there as well. So we want to wish everybody fair winds and following seas.
U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. Thank <laughs> you.